the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Revelation. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. You have to convert if you want to be in the Roman Empire. On the surface might sound, that's cool, but that's not cool at all because now everybody's a Christian whether they really have a heart for it or not. You want to become a Christian now, it's the state mandate. That morphs into the Roman Catholic Church because the state religion becomes the Roman Catholic Church, 606 AD, that's the next event. And Pergamos represents that transition. And then Thyatira, 606, the Roman Catholic Church until 1517. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Revelation. The letters written to the churches in the book of Revelation are extremely fascinating. These letters were written to specific churches during that time, and they are also prophetic in nature regarding the timeline of church history. Today, Pastor Gary will be challenging you to look inward and see if there's any exhortations in these letters that could be applied to your specific walk with the Lord. If you've been going to church out of obligation, you may need to begin a sincere relationship with Jesus. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Revelation chapter 3 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Here's the timeline of events, friends. And again, this is all very confusing, but this is the outline of the whole book of Revelation. We go through it step by step. The only part right now you have to worry about is the church age. That's where we are in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And this is that section of scripture here in Revelation, particularly chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus dictates seven letters to seven different churches. You'll notice in your Bibles that Revelation 2 and 3 are read. If you have a red letter edition of the Bible, this is Jesus speaking. He is dictating these different letters to these seven churches. And these seven churches are located here in Asia Minor. And so we've been looking at these particular cities, starting with Ephesus. Each letter goes clockwise. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are literal churches. They have um, received literal letters in the first century. They are intended to, these letters intended to instruct these individual literal churches. But in addition to that, it has application for us as well. We can learn from what these letters say because we can understand the heart of Jesus towards these churches and recognize that here we are today Uh, in in the 21st century, and yet each letter ends by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. 
And so even today, we need to have ears to hear what is Jesus saying to us through these different letters. Uh, And in addition, these different letters serve to be a, a picture of church history, because each letter personifies some aspect of church history heading into even the future. So this is our timeline we're looking at. So the first letter to the church of Ephesus represented the first century, 33 to 100 AD, which was when Jesus ascended back to heaven, 33 AD, the the ministry of the New Testament church begins and continues until the end of the apostolic age, which is 100 AD, roughly when the last of the original apostles died. And then that takes us to the second letter, Smyrna, 100 to 312 AD. A significant event happened in 312 AD. The emperor, Roman emperor Constantine had this epiphany of a, of a fiery cross, and he heard what he says is the voice of the Lord. He has this conversion experience to Christianity. Remember, Roman Empire, polytheistic. This was a huge conversion experience for the emperor of the Roman Empire to come to faith in Jesus. And what he does is he makes Christianity gain favorable status throughout the entire Roman Empire. Before that, Christians were were martyred for their faith. They were seen as enemies of the empire. Only Caesar was Lord. Now, Constantine says, because I've had this experience, I want everybody to have this experience. And so he elevates Christianity to favored status. And shortly after that, another emperor, Theodosius, not Expialidocius, Theodosius, okay, that's a whole other thing. Theodosius, the emperor in 380 AD, actually makes Christianity the state religion that you have to convert if you want to be in the Roman Empire. On the surface might sound, that's cool, but that's not cool at all because now everybody's a Christian whether they really have a heart for it or not. You want to become a Christian now, it's the state mandate. That morphs into the Roman Catholic Church because the state religion becomes the Roman Catholic Church, 606 AD, that's the next event. And Pergamos represents that transition. And then Thyatira, 606, the Roman Catholic Church, until 1517. Now, a major event happens in 1517 in church history, and that brings us to Sardis, which is the letter that we left off last time. And so that's here in chapter 3, the church of Sardis. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 down through verse 6 of Revelation chapter 3. So we come here now to the church of Sardis. This is the fifth out of the seven letters in chapter 3. I'll read the first six verses. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we make our journey now on the, on the uh, map around to Sardis. Sardis is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible outside of the book of Revelation. 
It was situated about 65 miles east of Smyrna and about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. A little bit of history behind this city so we can understand the context. Here Jesus is dictating this letter to be read to the church in Sardis, so we need to understand a little background about each of these churches and the cities in which they occupied uh, to understand a little bit of the context. So Sardis historically was a very wealthy city located along a major trade route through Asia Minor. Like the rest of the Roman Empire, it was polytheistic. The main goddess of Sardis was Artemis. Artemis was the goddess of the hunt. She was also the goddess of fertility. Also Sybil. She was the goddess Mother Earth. Dionysus was the god of wine. We'll come back to him in a moment. Uh, Some of the first coins ever minted were minted here at Sardis. It was the center of carpet and wool industries, even back in the first century. And garments were made here. Now note that because Jesus is going to talk about garments, if you, if you notice when we read through there. And something else about this city that it was known for, it was known for a huge necropolis. Now a necropolis is basically a large graveyard from two Greek words, nekros in the Greek uh, meaning death, at, you know, necromancy is like, it's, it's witchcraft, it's talking to the dead. Um, polis meaning city. So necropolis, necrospolis meaning uh, a city of death because this large elaborate graveyard gave this city Sardis a nickname, the Cemetery on a Thousand Hills. That's what Sardis was nicknamed, the Cemetery on a Thousand Hills. And so these last two bullet points I just mentioned, the idea that garments were made here, And the idea that there was a large graveyard here, Jesus is going to play off these two themes in this letter to them. Now, at some point, Sardis becomes influenced by Christianity uh, because there's a church here. Even in the midst of a very polytheistic Roman city, as Sardis was, uh, it was influenced by Christianity because not only does Jesus address a literal church here in, in the letter to in Revelation, But the remains of a Christian church building were discovered near the Temple of Artemis, the ancient ruins of the Temple of Artemis. Without doubt, the presence of a church was a strong witness to this immoral pagan city. You know, I I love the idea that Christianity in general should be about shining light in the darkness, Uh, you know, not, not running from it, but, you know, being the the counter to darkness. And so it's a beautiful picture here where the remains of an early Christian church found right next to the temple of Artemis. And it is saying, you know, listen, the culture may be, may lean one way, but we're going to influence that culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In AD 17, a major earthquake uh, passed through Turkey, this region that we're talking about here, Asia Minor or Turkey, And uh, the city was basically devastated, and it was never rebuilt to its former glory as a result of this earthquake in A.D. 17. Today, Sardis is the modern town of Sart in Turkey with a population of about only 5,300 people. Now, here's the breakdown of this letter that we just read, and uh, every letter that we're looking at through these seven give us some unique title for Jesus— Uh, He mentions a commendation, he mentions a complaint, and he mentions a reward. So here's what he says here to the church of Sardis. And the church of Sardis 
is basically seen in, in church history as the dead church. And we'll talk more about why that is. But first, just kind of gleaning application from this letter that Jesus dictates here to the church at Sardis. What can we learn? What can we understand? What's the application? First of all, his title here that he uses for himself is him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, the number seven in the Bible often is a picture, is a number for perfection or completion. And so one idea behind the idea when he says he has the seven spirits of God, because there's only one Holy Spirit, so what does this mean, seven spirits of God, is is that it simply refers to the perfect work of the Holy Spirit, the seven being the idea of perfection or holiness, uh, uh, rather perfection or completion, that, that there's one spirit of God And so seven spirits, simply an indication of the perfect work of the spirit. But it can also be literally translated the sevenfold spirit, the sevenfold spirit, uh, or the complete fullness of the Holy Spirit. And with that in mind, we can see the sevenfold attributes of the one Holy Spirit in Isaiah chapter 11. I'm going to read verse 2. This is what Isaiah 11 verse 2 says. And this verse applied to Jesus as Messiah. This is what Isaiah eleven two says. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And in that verse there in Isaiah eleven two, it actually gives us seven aspects of the one spirit. In other words, the sevenfold aspect of the one spirit. Again, in that verse in Isaiah eleven two, it tells us the Holy Spirit is, number one, the Spirit of the Lord. Number two, the Spirit of wisdom. Number three, the Spirit of understanding. Number four, the Spirit of counsel. Number five, the Spirit of might. Number six, the Spirit of knowledge. And number seven, the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. And so it was this sevenfold Spirit that rested upon Jesus Christ. That is what is meant by the seven spirits of God. There's only one Spirit. It either means the the fullness of the Spirit with the number seven, or it means the sevenfold aspect of the one Holy Spirit. Now, what does it mean about the seven stars? He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Well, back in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, it's spelled out for us that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And that word angels, each letter begins addressed to the angel, but again, it is agalos, and agalos can also translate messenger. It's the same Greek word used, agalos, for John the Baptist. And so again, not a literal angel, but probably just simply the messenger of each church, meaning the pastor. And so when he says here that he has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, how comforting to know that Jesus Christ has the pastors of these churches in the safety of his hand. His commendation about them is that they are a small minority or a remnant of holy people, and he commends them for this. God has always done great things throughout time through a small remnant of his people. It doesn't take a large number of people with God. God can do whatever he wants, and he often uses a small remnant of people to accomplish his purposes. Look throughout biblical history, Noah and his family. That was it that God used to repopulate the earth. Gideon and a small army with Gideon to defeat the Midianites. Three brave brave Jewish teenagers who stood up to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. 
One courageous Jewish princess, Esther, living in a foreign land, standing for what was right with God. Twelve apostles. I mean, all through the Bible, you see just how God used a few, just a remnant here and there to accomplish his purposes. A few righteous people in God's hands can make all the difference in the world. So he commends them that in this church, there's a remnant of holy people. But now here's his complaint. His complaint is that you can be alive on the outside, but dead on the inside. That was this church. They were busy. They were active. They were productive, but they were spiritually dead. Activity does not equal vitality. Activity does not equal vitality. You can be a very busy church, but be very spiritually dead. Their works were not done out of the overflow of their walk with God, but out of obligation and duty. And so he, he complains about this. He, he condemns them uh, for, for being alive on the outside, but, but dead on the inside. You know, this is one of the complaints that Jesus had with the Pharisees in his day. He said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. And, and so the idea is that we need to be spiritually alive, not just look alive, but actually be alive. He said, you're dead. You're spiritually dead. That'll have ramifications to the historical application we'll get to in a minute. But then his reward for those who are the true remnant within the church of Sardis is that they're going to be clothed in white garments. And white in in scripture is a picture of righteousness. So they're going to be clothed in righteousness. Now, I think this is literal and figurative. It's the idea of being clothed in righteousness. But I think that the saints will be, you know, you're going to get that white robe one day so that nobody's going to worry what label you have and what store you bought that outfit from. It's all going to be given by God. It's going to be the standard uniform and you're all going to be dressed in white as the saints. And so he's, but it's a picture of being clothed in his righteousness where God provides for us those garments of, of white. And then he adds there, another part of this reward is that your name for the righteous, for those who are real followers of Christ, he says, your name will not be blotted out of the book of life. Your name will not be blotted out of the book of life. Now, depending on what translation of the Bible you read from, and I'm reading from New King James, in the New King James Version, the book of life is mentioned seven times in the book of Revelation. This is the first. The first of seven times. What exactly is the book of life? The book of life is a record of all the names of the people who are going to heaven. Now, I have mentioned this before, and I get sometimes a little pushback on this verse, but I'm going to tell you my conviction about what he is saying here when he uses the specific language that your name shall not be blotted out of the book of life. Notice he does not say that if you're righteous, your name will be added to the book of life. Why is that significant? Because I think the inference is that everyone's name starts out in the book of life. Now, this is not the only text because it's dangerous sometimes to build a whole, you know, doctrine off of one text. Listen to what David wrote in Psalm 69 verse 28. When David was writing about his enemies, and he was pleading with God, he was praying to God about his enemies, and he said this in Psalm 69, 28, let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. So even David says, let their names be blotted out. They're my enemies, they don't love you. God, blot their names out. Again, the inference is the name is already there, 
in order for it to be blotted out. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that, you know, everybody gets saved and, and, and you know, and that your, your name, you know, could get blotted out for various reasons. What I'm saying is that there's this initial um, entry of names into the book of life, which answers the question. I get this question all the time. What about little kids who die before they come to know Christ? What about little kids who are like one or two years old and they die and they don't, they don't have the ability to come to know Christ? What about those who are mentally disabled and they can't, they can't make a decision for Christ? They don't have the mental capacity to make a decision for Christ. Some do, but not, not all. And, and these kind of questions that people raise about what happens before somebody is even able. And when you look at other passages of Scripture, for example, when David, in his sin with Bathsheba, conceived a child and that child died... David was praying to God for that child to live, and when the child died, he got up and ended his fast and went into the temple of the Lord, and he was asked, why are you not now still mourning? And he said, he shall not return to me, but I shall go to him one day. And David even understood that that little child, that little baby, would never return to earth But David knew that where he was going in heaven, he would see that child again. You you see gracious provision in the book of of Exodus when when, um, an entire generation of adults was not permitted to go into the promised land because of their sin against the Lord, except for two, Joshua and Caleb. God made gracious provision, however, for their children and said, your children shall go in, but you as adults shall not. Because you disobeyed me. God made gracious provision to take the children into the promised land. When you, when you sew all this together, I'm personally convinced. You can disagree if you want to be wrong. I'm personally convinced. I'm kidding. There's room for debate. I'm personally convinced your name is entered. It's the reason why children, before they have an opportunity to receive Christ, their name is in the book of life. Your name is entered. The reason it gets blotted out specifically is when one rejects Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. When you don't accept Christ as Lord and Savior, then there's no remedy for you, and your name is blotted out of the book of life. And there's no entry to heaven for you. So, you know, I don't want anybody to misunderstand. I'm still saying the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ. What I am saying, however, is based on the language here in other places, like what I quoted from David is that your name is first written and it's blotted out if you don't receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and if you don't confess him as Lord and Savior. So you keep your name from being removed by trusting Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. So he he rewards them in this way, and that is a good reminder to all of us. Now, let's talk about this in terms of its uh, church historical application, because the Church of Sardis represents, on the the timeline of church history, A.D. 1517 to A.D. 1750. And these bookend events were, in in 1517, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther, who was a Catholic monk on October the 31st, 1517, had 95 objections to the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic doctrine that became known as his 95 Theses that he nailed on the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and his objection to the Roman... He's, he's, a, he's a Catholic monk himself, and he objected to the Roman Catholic doctrine, particularly 
specifically indulgences. Thanks for listening today to Cornerstone Connection. This book of Revelation that you've been studying with Pastor Gary is one that many have studied and analyzed, tried and tried again to pinpoint on a timeline. When will Jesus come? When will these and times events take place? Have they already begun? There are many questions we don't have the answers to, and we won't until they happen. But there are some truths that we can hold on to. These events will happen. Jesus is returning, and he will defeat Satan once and for all. And all those who have made Jesus Lord in their life will be with him for eternity. What a wonderful time that will be. So where does that leave us? It's important to know what's coming so that you can prepare now and trust Jesus for what we don't know. We must give our lives to the Lord, and we need to give others the opportunity to do the same. We're so glad you tuned in for today's study in Revelation. If you'd like to explore more teachings from God's Word that Pastor Gary has shared, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc. There you'll also learn more about the church behind this ministry, Cornerstone Chapel. Come visit us if you're in the area. All the information you need is at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Join us next time for more here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.